Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and welcome to a special episode of Ukraine, the latest. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. In the first few months of the full-scale invasion, Russian forces advanced swiftly from the north, east and south, occupying thousands of square miles of Ukrainian territory. Describing the occupation in terms of ground gained of course doesn't paint the whole picture. All of society, including state institutions, had to reckon with Russian troops, from schools to police stations to prisons and hospitals. After occupation came pacification and the elimination of actors and organisations that Russia thought would be hostile to the new regime. Torture became an important and horrific tool of Russian rule. In this episode, I speak to international human rights lawyers Vadim Chogin and Therese Reiter from the independent human rights organisation Dignity. That's the Danish Institute Against Torture. We talked about their work documenting instances of torture and other possible war crimes in the occupied territories. A warning for our listeners, this episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and cruelty. I started by asking Vadim and Therese to introduce themselves. My name is Therese Reiter. I'm a lawyer by training, a human rights lawyer. Currently, and for the past many years, the legal director of Dignity, which is the Danish Institute Against Torture, an organisation working to fight torture in about 20 countries worldwide. In addition to that, I'm also the Vice President of the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture, which inspects prisons and other places of detention in the 46 member states of the Council of Europe, including in Ukraine and Russia, and in the UK. <laughs> and my name is Vadim Chogan, and I'm a human rights lawyer. I'm originally from Ukraine. I currently work at Dignity, Danish Institute Against Torture, and together with Teresa in the same legal department, which Teresa leads. I work on various projects in Ukraine, including accountability projects like this one, and I have background in prisons and human rights. That's why also the topic of uh, this report, and I'm a co-author of this report. Can we start just by talking about your reports as a whole? Um, it's called Nine Circles of Hell, Places of Detention in Ukraine under the Russian Occupation, March 2022. To December 2022. Could you summarise what you found for us? What do you think are the most important takeaways? Well, perhaps it's important to start by saying that this work has been a collaborative endeavour and we have relied very much on our partners on the ground in Ukraine. So Ukraine Without Torture, 
Kharkiv Human Rights Protection Group and Protection of Prisoners of Ukraine, three NGOs, and then also a European NGO called the European Prison Litigation Network. It's crucial, this report, because it comes out with what we consider to be evidence of what kind of violations are taking place in Ukrainian places of detention under Russian occupation. So here we are talking about places which normally are not accessible to human rights organizations or anyone else. So in that sense, that access is quite extraordinary. And we have collated 700 cases of human rights violations, including 152 cases of what we believe to be torture or other forms of inhuman treatment. These are the key findings. And let me also say, I think one of the major takeaways from this report is that we see the torture being widespread and systematic in the occupied territories under Russian control, which means that actually this might be something that amounts to crimes against humanity, which is a very serious affair, obviously. Thank you, Therese. Uh, Vadim, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, maybe about the uh, chronology of this report, how it started, uh, because exactly it started from February, right after the full-scale invasion. Just a reminder that the war in Ukraine started not in 22, but it started in 2014. So we call it full-scale invasion 22. And um, when it started, we saw massive scale of atrocities and there were a lot of initiatives to document war crimes committed by Russians in Ukraine. We thought that we as organizations who work on prisons specifically should work on our thematic area of expertise and we started to monitor prisons together with our partners on the ground. In the beginning, it was very difficult because no access, obviously nobody had access to these prisons. So we decided to do open source documentation and focus on the information of all kinds uh, coming from social media, uh, websites on what was happening in prisons. But also we had insiders in prisons. And there was a difficult balance for us whether we could actually talk to them about what was happening there because we know that it is very easy to wiretape any conversation and prison administrations, they do it. And so the Russians would obviously do it. And um, we thought that we wouldn't risk and we would rather have no information about what was happening than put at risk any prisoner because a word about torture could cost someone a life uh, in that prison. So we focused very much on open source, and then we started to develop a strategy. How do we document? And we thought that, well, maybe let's talk to prisoners who got released and who actually returned to the Ukraine's controlled territories, or who got to Russia and then were released in Russia and then returned to Ukraine, and they could speak freely without fear of reprisals. And we managed to collect a lot, and we started to, to see right away that... Basically, everyone to whom we spoke spoke about torture, not only applied in prison in general, but applied to them. So that was a systematic pattern right away that we saw from all... Uh, and there were different prisons in these regions, and everybody spoke about torture. So we thought that torture should be our thematic focus. And uh, then when uh, Kherson was liberated in November uh, by the Ukrainian armed forces, a prison was liberated as well. And in that prison, there were prisoners from many different prisons which were under the Russian occupation, meaning that we basically had right away access to prisoners from various prisons who experienced Russia's occupation. And we had access as organizations who have specific mandate to visit Ukrainian prisons. So we had different avenues and something we didn't expect in the beginning. First, we thought, okay, it's only open source. We have very limited information. And then we had an explosion of information, a lot of testimonies. And that's why this report. 
in your report, you talk about a lot of different sorts of institutions. Some are, some are prisons, official places of detention, police stations, unofficial places of detention as well. Could you just talk us through and help our listeners understand sort of where these places are? What do they look like? Right. So the, the priority for us was um, were prisons uh, because this was something we worked on. But also we thought, right, the, the places of detention are not only prisons. These are police stations. These are social institutions like psychiatric hospitals. These are also unofficial places of detention, which could be garages, uh, basements uh, of individual houses. So we thought that maybe focusing only on prisons is not enough, especially if th- that there is a lot of information on other types of places of detention. And we thought that compiling it in one report to give a reader a, a proper overview of all places of detention and to compare patterns there, that was something we could do and we should do. Now we see that our focus is shifting a bit towards prisons, more towards prisons maybe, because we have a lot of direct victims to whom we can talk, while with other places of detention it's not always the case, and also there are other organizations who who work on, on, on specific uh, places of detention. This report focused heavily on uh, prisons. Yeah, I, th- I think the important thing here is both the official and the unofficial angle, because normally one would expect that persons are held in a lawful manner, and that, that there is no arbitrary detention, which of course might be the case in those places where it's official, but certainly all of these unofficial places of detention are places where we don't only see the human rights violations in terms of torture and ill-treatment, but also to begin with the fact that they are arbitrarily detained and held in places which are unacknowledged, which means these are secret places of detention, which means that, legally speaking, these persons are actually also victims of enforced disappearance. So here there is another layer of human rights violations because of the mere fact that they are held in unacknowledged and unofficial places of detention. Thanks, Vadim and Therese. Can we go back then to last year and just, can you talk, both of you, just talk to me a little bit about what happened in those first few months when the Russian troops did advance hundreds of miles across Ukraine and took over lots of state institutions. What did that look like? What were the first things the the occupying forces did? How does this story start for you? So I think Russians, they had a very clear strategy to control civilian population by places of detention. So places of detention is an instrument was an instrument for them to control civilian population. That's why one of the first administrative acts was to establish police uh, stations or just use the previous police stations to establish detention cells for those who would be a a slightest threat to their regime, which um, would be former police officers, former Ukrainian soldiers who were not engaged in the army uh, at that point when they occupied. Also civilians, ordinary civilians like teachers who wouldn't collaborate with them or who would prepare any counter-propaganda or could have any influence uh, or undermine the occupation regime. So, And it reminds me of a saying, I'm not sure exactly who said that, but uh, the one who has keys from a prison has keys from a town or from from a city. And that's what was happening. The, the first thing was to actually get into police stations to get keys from these detention cells. Prisons came later. So then for two months, prisons stayed without any attempts from Russians to, to occupy them. And then uh, they actually started to change administrations in prisons as well. 
So these were a, a bit different time frames. But the first thing was police stations. And like social institutions, they would be the latest. So And there would be very little intervention in social institutions. And wherever there was intervention by the Russians, they started with torture. So torture was a clear instrument to control the civilian population, to spread intimidation, to retaliate against any efforts to support the Ukrainian army on the side of the civilian population or to boycott the Russian occupation and, you know, Ukraine were very much opposing uh, the Russians and they even post in a Facebook uh, page or in other social media could lead to detention and torture. Can we talk a little bit about the experience of Ukrainian prisons in the occupied territories? It's not something I think that I've ever seen much work done on in the last year. So it's very interesting to hear, to read your report and read the experience of the people who were held there and then what during the occupation were essentially abused and suffered torture under by by the Russian occupiers. Can you talk, both of you, just about what that experience for Ukrainian prisoners was like? Can we tell their stories? Well, the report is very much based indeed on individual stories. And I think the best way to describe what was happening are the words of people and direct speech of people. That's why we have so much of a direct speech there. It reminds me of one prisoner saying that, well, when the Russians came, torture became a norm. It became a norm and prisoners were beaten from the very first day. For example, in Kherson pretrial detention center, when Russians entered the, the prison, I think it was in May, they started by launching grenades to, to live in quarters of, prison, of, of this prison to intimidate right away, to show that here are the new administrators who came and we will manage you, don't oppose, don't resist, and yeah, you are now under our control. And then they started to look for prisoner leaders, any prisoners who had links, uh, who held a pr- uh, patriotic position, a pro-Ukrainian attitude, or yeah, who 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 was, for example, Ukrainian speaker as well. So they they targeted those who could be any threat to them. And of course, former Ukrainian soldiers who were ordinary prisoners, there were such prisoners as well. It was much worse for them, of course. They were even taken away from these prisons, and we don't know what happened to them after. So, yeah, from the very first day, and then they started to do searches in prisoners' cells. They, they would beat prisoners every time. They killed prisoners as well to show their, what would happen to those who pose any problem to, to the Russians. So there were many attempts to spread this atmosphere of fear that prisoners behave very calmly, do not oppose anyhow. Concerning the civilian population, it was... Also a different pattern in a way. So while in prisons they need to keep an order and to maintain security, while in the outside prisons, let's say, these official place of detention, like police stations, they were used to suppress any um, opposition to their rule. Patriots, those who are known for patriotic position, those who would be suspects of transmitting coordinates of the Russian troops to the Ukrainian army. And um, even children were detained in unofficial places of detention. So we have uh, such a case, uh, for example, uh, I think a 15-year-old was uh, detained in the basement in the appeal court because he had some patriotic uh, images in his cell phone or something like that. So they targeted clearly pro-Ukrainian, uh, pro-Ukrainians or those who would anyhow resist Russians. And Theresa, please feel free to join Yeah, I think maybe what is worth also underlining is the fact that the kinds of torture that we saw were very different. So we saw physical torture, we saw psychological torture, we saw sexual torture. So just to give you an example, physical torture would be 
what we so often see in prisons, but here much worse. We see punches, we see kicks, but also being hit with truncheons. We saw people being exposed to what is called like near suffocation, where you place a plastic bag over their head, and only the moment that they can almost not breathe anymore, you remove it. The front page of the report, which is a gas mask, you can see here, that was also used with the Z on, which is the sign for Russia's war against Ukraine. So the prisoners were had, had these masks put on them, and then the actual input of oxygen was closed down so that, again, it would have the effect of almost suffocating them. And only once they either had fainted or near fainting, they would be removed again and get air. So that's the physical part. Often we saw the physical torture being combined with psychological torture. And this, for instance, would be threats of execution. So again, a person would be hooded, and then the uh, officials of the prison would start shooting, but just above their head. So you cannot see anything. You don't know whether they just missed you this time around and whether next time they'll hit you in the head. And this is known to be one of the extreme, I mean, brutal and very, very traumatizing types of torture, of course. Um, so these mock executions took place and prisoners were also threatened that if they did not do, as the Russian would say, then their family members might also be exposed to mock executions or beatings. And then finally, let me mention the sexual torture, because this is something which is very severe as well. We saw a number of cases in which people had electrodes placed to their genitals, and then they would simply open up the current, the electricity, and then they would have these, I mean, electricity going to their yeah, genitals, something which is not only extremely painful, but you can imagine also the psychological effects of this and also the effects in terms of a man, for instance, or a woman, uh, having administered uh, current through your genitals, what that means for reproduction possibilities. So an extremely brutal and an extremely cruel pattern of these three types of torture. The title of your report, we mentioned it at the beginning of this recording, Nine Circles of Hell. Can you tell us where this quote comes from and why you chose it? That's a story about a prisoner in a prison. Uh, it's called Pivnichna Colony or Pivnichna Prison Number 90 in Kherson region. There, uh, a prisoner was suspected of cooperating with the Ukrainian armed forces, that he uh, transmitted coordinates of the Russian troops, which uh, he did not admit, actually, and then forced him to sign documents when he didn't even see what type of documents. Then they started, they, they were torturing him by strangling him. For a few days, he was tortured. And then he said, well, I cannot bear it anymore. Uh, just kill me. And then the torturer, he called his superior, probably in Russia, and it was uh, with a video call. And he asked, um, so can basically explain the situation. And the superior just nodded, basically cleared this murder. But then the torturer continued to torture the prisoner. And then at some point, the prisoner started to faint. They would pour water on him to wake him up and then he was fainting again they strangling him and at some point the torturer said wait it's too early you haven't gone through all seven circles of hell yet and this seven circles it's a mistake actually because what was implied would be there's nine circles of hell but that was an example of that the, the prisoner was would prefer to die rather than to 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 be um, subject to that, to that type of torture that long 
You've mentioned in that story the torturers themselves. What do we know about these people? What did you find out in your research? What we found that is that they they were very much aware that their names could be spotted. So in, from the very beginning, they came in a uniform, which wasn't even a Russian uniform. It was a black uniform. They wouldn't show their faces, but then they started to show faces. Sometimes prisoners heard their nicknames. We have some names. So this report contains also names of perpetrators. And uh, one must also say that uh, among the perpetrators were also Ukrainian prison officers who started to collaborate with the Russians and they yeah they they were used as instruments also to torture prisoners and we also have those names and these names have been transferred to the Ukrainian and actually international accountability bodies so in Ukraine there have been already a few uh, prosecution into this and you already saw first prison officials arrested which were collaborants, or they are called collaborants, those who collaborated with with Russians. About the Russians is more difficult because they are not on the Ukrainian on the Ukraine controlled territories, but their names are sent where they have to be sent, and we will keep that track. We keep receiving more names. Therese, would you like to add anything to that? What happens next for for the? I mean, as Fadim said in, in Ukraine, you know, you can maybe find these people, start prosecuting them. What happens for the people who we don't know where they are? Well, for those that we don't know where they are, it will be very difficult for us, obviously. If if we get some information about that, we would be able to track them. But I think from our end, what we have now is already quite a lot of potential evidence for prosecutions, for war crimes, and even crimes against humanity. So we will be sharing this documentation with a number of different institutions. One, of course, is the Prosecutor General's Office, who have already received a number of these cases. Secondly, the Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine, which is a UN commission that is also investigating these crimes and collecting evidence. And then thirdly, we will also be making submissions to the International Criminal Court, who, as you know, is already investigating both war crimes and crimes against humanity, So I think there's a number of different recipients of of this evidence. And finally, I should mention, there's also across Europe, 10 different countries that have opened investigations into war crimes committed in Ukraine. And those who wish to receive our information, who might have specific needs of names, patterns, that's also some bodies that we would then be able to share the information with. Thanks, Therese. Thanks, Vadim. Just before we go on, you've spoken in depth about the official places of detention, the prisons that were occupied and the experience of the prisoners. I know you've mentioned it before, but could you sort of sum up and just go through a little bit what the experience for civilians was like in the unofficial places uh, places of detention? Well, first of all, unofficial places of detention, what it is, right? And I mentioned, but uh, maybe to give a few examples, that would be individual like agricultural compounds next to individual houses or basements of individual houses that could also be um, places like official institutions that are not designed for detention. For example, a courts building. And there is a basement, so that basement could be used, and it was used actually in Kherson, or there, there, there would be also sometimes even holes dug into soil uh, a few meters, and people were detained there for a few days, and in one case actually died and scratched their names uh, on the walls of this hole before dying. So this this sort of things happened, but what we found that often torture preceded executions. 
and concerning the unofficial place of detention, another thing worth highlight, highlight maybe is very often this were completely innocent civilian people who were tortured there. And they would be detained for any slightest issue, like a teacher refusing to cooperate or head of a plant uh, that would refuse to cooperate or even a priest. So there, there was a story of a priest who was tortured and uh, in Kharkiv region because he, yeah, they suspected that he cooperated with the Ukrainian intelligence. They couldn't believe that a priest can be not connected to secret services, like like it's probably in Russia. And they told exactly that to the priest that we can't believe that you like you you must have some connections to the intelligence services of Ukraine. And uh, they would use, uh, I think in terms of torture, we saw much more electric uh, torture in uh, unofficial places of detention. Like torture used uh, to electrocut people, including through connecting the cables to people's genitalia. And that was, uh, I think it's, it was also used in prisons, but mostly in a place of detention. What's interesting is that the Russians had already uh, often portable devices to inflict electric shocks. We even had a story, uh, and this this would be devices like military devices, like the military telephones, field telephones, where they would t- spin uh, a part of it and uh, it would produce electricity. But there was even a case where our former colleague, a former colleague, a, a former partner um, who worked for one of our partners, uh, Ukraine Without Torture, who was a monitor of the national preventive mechanism, so a person who would go in peace times, who would go to prisons and monitor prisons to check uh, if they were human rights compliant. So he was in Kherson region uh, during occupation, and he was invited by the Russians to their office, and uh, they he stayed there for quite a few hours, and they knew everything about him. And they asked him to collaborate with them, to work with the new occupation administration. And he said no. And they said, well, you can go. And when he started to go, they electroshocked him by a taser. He lost consciousness. And when he woke up, he was uh, covered in blood. So they, w- they, they beat him when he was uh, without conscious consciousness. And uh, he, was, uh, he then fled uh, to the Ukraine-controlled territories. He's now living abroad. So we, we had detailed testimonies from him. But it's one of yeah, one of our uh, former colleagues, let's say, from Ukraine without torture. Theresa? Well, I think this sums up very, very accurately who the victims were. They were a multiplicity of different types. So uh, I think, as you mentioned already, perhaps just to mention that in the prisons, what we also saw was that those prisoners that were targeted primarily were those who were convicted of the most serious types of crimes, but also those who are unofficial prisoner leaders, who in many prisons are the ones that sometimes can control other prisoners. So there's a, a whole hierarchy in prisons amongst the prisoners. And they had this very notable star tattooed on their knees, and that was one of the ways in which the Russians would also identify them and expose them primarily to, to very brutal forms of, of ill treatment. Can we go back and talk a little bit about this idea of this being a systematic strategy, that this isn't just, this isn't random, this is planned? Because this, this, as your report makes clear, this happens across the occupied territories, places thousands of miles distant from Hassan to Kharkiv. Therese, would you talk a little bit about that when, when we say it's, it's, it's systematic? What do we mean by that? And, and what are the implications of that? Absolutely. So what we did was that there were a number of interviews in total, 121 interviews, of which we did 64 ourselves, our partners. 
Out of these 64 interviews, 85% alleged torture or inhuman treatment. So this obviously is extremely widespread in terms of the sheer numbers. What is also important to keep in mind is that it was at every single prison facility that we had these stories of torture and inhuman treatment, be it physical, psychological or sexual. So the ubiquity of the torture in the place of detention, the geographical spread throughout the entire occupied territories, um, but also the commonalities in terms of the methods that were used, also the commonalities in terms of the victims that were targeted, this all together means that we can, we believe to be able to say that the practice of torture was indeed widespread and systematic. Now, what does that mean? It means in legal terms that this might amount to crimes against humanity. So these would not be, if I may say, quote unquote, mere war crimes, which is of course serious enough in itself, but this is one step up. This is really what we consider to be a crime against humanity, which is one of the most serious international crimes. And this has implications, obviously, for for the, the ICC or for other in courts, either national or future international courts, that might be prosecuting these persons because the, the, the conviction will be of a complete different nature. It also means that uh, this might also include persons high up in the system. So we will not only see those that are actually exercising the torture physically, the guards, but we might see also persons held responsible who are, it could be the prison director, but it could also be people much higher up in the system at a political level. Vadim, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I think it captures very well, uh, maybe about the police stations, I can say, and about the numbers, I think we didn't mention that. So we are speaking about 12 prisons in this newly occupied territories, because there were also a lot, a lot of prisons in the Donetsk region and Lugansk region occupied from 2014. So 11 prisons, around 100 police stations, and around 40 social institutions, and could be even more, and uh, tens of thousands of people altogether. And uh, all police stations, I don't think we heard any case where a police station in an occupied city wouldn't be used to, to torture civilians. That also shows. And uh, for torture to be systematic, you not necessarily need to have a written plan that torture should take place in all prisons or in all police stations. But uh, by uh, comparing different places of detention, comparing the methods, seeing the, these people, uh, survivors of torture coming from all prisons, we we see that it is it is systematic and widespread. I think that's, that torture is a norm, uh, captures it uh, in prisoners' words, and uh, that's what we heard from, yeah, from, the, from the vast majority, as Theresa mentioned. We spoke earlier about the experience in the first few months of the full-scale invasion and the, and the occupation and what happened next. Towards the end of last year, we saw a series of successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, counteroffensives, the two most famous in the north in Kharkiv and in the south in Kherson. What Can you just talk us through what, what happened there? What did these, because that's where a lot of some of the testimony comes from, what did the advancing troops and the liberated civilians find? When the Ukrainian armed forces liberated the Kherson region and also a part of Mykolaiv region, that actually all, I think, Mykolaiv region, and there was also a prison there and in Kherson region, the prisoners were lost a bit. They didn't know what to do. They were closed and the information came across the prisons that they were mined. So the, the Russians mined that prisoners couldn't escape. But the prison administration left the prisons. 
So and prisoners stayed there, of course, active fighting, and they didn't know what to do. And at some point, they opened, they managed to open the doors uh, or the gates of prisons, and they went out. They went to the city, and then uh, the Ukrainian authorities, when they took proper control over, for example, the city of Kherson, they started to deliver a message that prisoners have to return. And that it was actually surprising that even live prisoners would return. So. They, they they wouldn't escape live prisoners who were who didn't who in Ukraine by the way do not have a realistic perspective of release they returned uh, to to the Ukrainian controlled uh, prisons and then they were transferred to other prisons because in Kherson for example it was very yeah dangerous for them to stay there so they were evacuated to various prisons where we managed to interview them later on right i think that's about prisoners of course there was a lot of confusion among prisoners also in the beginning of uh, occupation and they were all mentioning that they were waiting for the for the liberation. So they were, until like the, the majority of them were very pro-Ukrainian. Some implicitly, some explicitly. Very few who wanted actually to stay anyhow with Russia, and that's that was manifested also in prisoners' resistance to participate in this sham referenda that took place in um, yeah in, in receiving Russia's citizenship, but some received. So they were forced and they received Russian citizenship, so they had to deal with that. A lot of problems for them. And many actually were evacuated to the occupied territories and then to Russia. But we can talk about it more. Yeah, That, that leads, I think, into my next question. And both of you have talked a little bit about what we don't know. That your report is based on interviews you've done and open source investigations and the work of journalists. But there's an awful lot about the face of some of these people that we don't know, people who had disappeared, as you just said, Vadim, evacuated to, to Russia or to, the, to Luhansk or Donetsk. Can we talk a little bit about that? What, what, you've, you've shone a light on a lot, but there's a lot that still remains in darkness. What, what is that? Well, yeah, we can only imagine what's happening now uh, in those occupied territories that remain occupied. And um, it reminds me a bit March 22, when we were actively trying to find information. There was little information. The majority of information for this report we, we managed to collect because the region was re- liberated. And there were, in that specific prison, prisoners from many prisons. Uh, they were just concentrated in one. So we, the majority of information, we, we got it after the region was liberated and we, we learned about all those horrors. That's probably what's happening in the occupied territories. We have some information, but we, it's not enough. Absolutely, we can only hope that the regions will be liberated as soon as possible and the Ukraine's counteroffensive is coming uh, according to, to many sources and we will see more. Uh, we know that some people who managed to escape from the occupation and then like more more recent survivors, let's say, they keep speaking the same thing, torture, uh, widespread against civilians, prisoners. We hear, for example, just this morning, I double-checked with uh, our partners what's happening with those prisoners who remained like in prisons in uh, Zaporizhia region and uh, in Kherson region in the south of Ukraine. And uh, we have uh, some information, um, like unconfirmed, unverified, but there is already information that they are building even a prison there. A new, a new one in Ganichesk, which is on the occupied areas. They even returned some, allegedly returned some prisoners from Russia. Those Ukrainian prisoners who were deported to Russia, they returned them to use their forced labor to build this prison and to build even the new prison, regional prison administration HQ. We can say that 
torture uh, keeps happening there in places of detention as we speak and we need to be mindful uh, of that and think that supports the cause uh, of uh, support to Ukraine and that these territories need to be liberated as, as soon as possible and we will keep monitoring what's happening and there will be more reports on this and um, yeah next reports will have more information shed more light on what is there actually we, there is a difficulty for us to evacuate some Ukrainian prisoners who ended up in the Russian territory so who were transferred to Russia but then they sometimes do not have passports they sometimes are detained in migration centers and we heard that they were tortured on their way to Russia and in Russia some of them even were forced to go to fight against Ukraine so we even had that type of information yeah so uh, unfortunately there will be probably another report about much worse cases Teres, any anything to, to add to that? Yeah, perhaps just to mention very briefly that what happened in Russia is something which is very difficult to find out. The only two bodies worldwide who have access to place of detention in Russia is, on the one hand, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and secondly, the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture under the Council of Europe. Because while Russia has been expelled from the Council of Europe, they remain states' parties to the Convention So this means that the CPT, which it's called, will be actually conducting a visit to Russia this year, will be moving into place of detention and also prisons. Now, whether they will be able to find some of those prisoners who have been sent from, from Ukraine, we don't know, because we don't know whether they are held in official place of detention or whether they're actually held somewhere else. So, so this remains to be seen. But I think this is one of the, the very few possibilities we actually have to see And, and verify how they are being treated once they've been transferred to, to the Russian Federation. Before we end, can I ask you both, obviously this report is made out of hundreds hundreds of individual testimonies from people who, who underwent the worst, most awful kind of treatment imaginable. What, are there any that particularly stand out for you that you'd want to share? I mean, as you said, it's, it's their words and their experiences really, which, which are the, are, we're trying to shine a light on. So for you both, is, is there anything that really stood out? <sighs> It's difficult to speak about an outstanding. They are, they are all uh, terrible uh, in one way or another. And um, I think the one that makes the title of this report stands out. But yeah, I think maybe there was, of course, uh, what can be worse than, than a murder. So the, we have a very clearly documented case about a prisoner who was killed when the Russians entered Kherson pretrial detention center. So he just didn't fall in the on the floor in the right time when they screamed that everybody had to 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 face the floor and they just shoot into him and then prisoners his uh, cellmates had to clean his brains and his skull and they were actually forced to be on the floor for a few hours after that in blood so you can just imagine if i can if can say if i can say this is probably one of the worst but there were also things like there was a person who was a former police officer who was tortured and whose wife was uh, pregnant nine nine months they told uh, him that we will kill you i think or something like that or we will torture you and uh, then your wife will give birth in bushes as a dog so psychological torture which can sometimes be worse than any physical torture people begging for death because they're tortured to that extent people killed 
it's all a massive atrocity, and um, I hope this report will tell the world the truth of with the words of victims. This is the key that these words are not lost, and that's why it's it's so much focused on individual testimonies and on direct speech. Yeah, I think nine circles of hell, I think that really captures it all because it's not just about intimidating, it's not just about punishing, it's not just about getting a confession. It's all of these things put together with a lot of brutality, with a lot of sadism. So I think the sheer inhumanity is something which really struck me. So yes, individual cases struck me, but the fact that this is something which seems to be repeated over and over again was something that, that really yeah hit me very hard. Thank you very much, Vidim and Therese. Can I ask you finally, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our, our listeners to hear? Maybe in the beginning, what I forgot to mention, because the evacuation wasn't properly organized, um, especially of those who were most at risk, those prisoners who were most at risk, like former Ukrainian soldiers, then they had to face the Russians and they were the first targets. So there is that issue uh, on the side of uh, the Ukraine state. We can also say that there, there there was lack of information to prison administrations, what they had to do, whether they... And many got confused. Like prison officers, they had to work uh, in prisons regularly as, as usual. Then they couldn't leave prisons. They couldn't leave prisoners, but they couldn't cooperate with the Russians. So they were they faced this dilemma and some managed to leave the region, some didn't. So I think uh, that maybe that is mentioned in the report. The blame is, of course, on, on, on the Russian Federation for what they did. And then maybe another thing was about what was, what was that? Yeah, I think the many prisons still remain occupied. They keep using prisoners for their military purposes, uh, like digging trenches, making fortifications for the Russians. They keep using prisons as military depots, so they store tanks in prisons. That's something we also documented and verified, which makes prisons targets, military targets, together with prisoners. So prisoners are not evacuated from those prisons where they store their military ammunition. And then maybe the last thing is about deportations. So these are forced deportations because prisoners are not asked, those who who are transferred to Russia, but not only prisoners, also people from psychiatric institutions, from children's institutions, you know, the children are also deported to Russia without consent. The, the Russian Federation even acknowledges uh, some prisoners' detention. So our partners managed to, to get this written confirmation this and that prisoner is in Russia. And they said that they evacuated them, but they never asked them whether they want to be evacuated or not, whether they, they, they were not given a possibility to, to serve a sentence close to their home. And some of them are, some of their, yeah, their detention sometimes is not acknowledged also. And many relatives suffer not knowing what happened to, to those people. And uh, we keep trying to track them. But this is also a responsibility for many international organizations who are in charge of this, like the Red Cross as well, the United Nations, who do not really have access. But um, yeah, that's, that's crucial that they have access to these places as soon as possible. Yeah, perhaps a final, on a final note, I think, I mean, we see now some of the most brutal forms of torture hitting at the very heart of Europe. We haven't seen that since the genocide in Srebrenica back in the mid-90s. So in this sense, it's quite extraordinary. I think what is also very positive, contrary to these patterns of very brutal violations, is that 
we have a united Europe that has come together, that has actually now, as I mentioned before, 10 states have opened investigations and will be prosecuting perpetrators. That's very positive. So we will see, hopefully, accountability for those acts, both by the perpetrators themselves, but also by persons high up in the system. We see the International Criminal Court also having issued arrest warrants over Putin and also the Commission on Children. So this is quite unprecedented in terms of actually trying to achieve justice and accountability. And for us who are collecting this kind of evidence and for our partners who are doing this work on the ground at great personal risk, this is very comforting because we do hope that the many victims will one day receive the justice that they receive, that they deserve. Trez and Vadim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much to you too. Thank you, David. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.